you're listening to a very broad history of werewolves and other things. And I am your host, Travis Roy. This is the podcast where I talk about any and every random historical subject that interests me, and hopefully interests you. Thanks for coming along. Hey everybody, welcome back to a very broad history of werewolves and other things. I am your consummate host, not even sure what that means, Travis Roy. Nice to have you all with me again, nice to be with all of you. I say hello to each and every person, including whoever started listening in the grand city of Amsterdam. It's like the only place I've ever been. I went there for four days with four people, none of whom smoked weed. My monogamous girlfriend at the time. So it was cool. Could have been cooler. (laughs) On that note, today we're going to be looking at the history behind It's a Wonderful Life because it's that magic time of the year. And this is one of the most influential movies, I think, in world history, certainly in American history. It's on AFI's Top 100, the American Film Institute's Top 100 Movies of All Time. It's on most critics' uh, lists of best movies of all time. It's it's widely and justly heralded as a classic. So we're going to explore that a little bit today. I'm going to start with the guy behind it all, that got it all started, a, a little-known fellow named Philip Van Doren Stern. What a patrician name that is. Uh, He is not widely remembered now beyond writing the short story that It's a Wonderful Life is based on. The short story was called The Greatest Gift. He was an author. He was actually a historian, um, a Civil War historian mainly. He also wrote about some other 19th century figures like Henry Thoreau and that kind of stuff. And he wrote this story, The Greatest Gift, He started it somewhere around 1939, supposedly. I guess he tinkered on it or tinkered with it for some time and tried to get it published. But uh, despite the fact that he was published many times as a historian, he apparently couldn't find anybody to believe in this particular work. So he eventually gave up on trying to get it published through uh, any sort of major publisher and instead just published it himself. Uh, He printed up about 220-page pamphlets that he used as Christmas cards that he gave out to friends in 1943 that that had this short story on it. And the stories, these, you know, these these pamphlets, they made the rounds. They they went around Hollywood and ended up in the hands of the head of RKO, which was at the time one of the biggest movie studios that was out there. And they purchased it for $10,000. They bought the rights and they thought that they would use it as a Cary Grant vehicle. And they tinkered around with it for a while. They had different people work on it, different screenwriters like Dorothy Parker and Dalton Trumbo, who probably put, both of them probably put kind of like a pretty leftist print on it, even though their versions didn't really make it to the final version of the film. Um, but eventually, that it just kind of fell apart. Cary Grant went on to do Bishop's Wife instead because he wanted to do some kind of Christmas movie, I guess. And it just kind of sat around RKO with nobody equipped or confident or interested in, 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 in doing it uh, until the war was over and Frank Capra returned from war. He hadn't exactly been at war. He'd actually been at work as a propagandist for the United States. He was born in Sicily, uh, but, he, but he grew up in California. Uh, he tried to get a degree, or I'm sorry, he, he tried to get a career in chemical engineering. And in fact, that's what he got his degree in, his bachelor's, maybe even his master's. I'm not positive. 
but eventually kind of fell into filmmaking because he, he grew up in Hollywood and that was like the local industry. And obviously he, he loved films and was pretty successful at that to the point that when uh, the, the war started, the United States government formed or the U.S. Army formed a branch of government they called the, the Office of War Information that acted as a propaganda arm for the government. Capra was hired to produce a series of documentary films that he called Why We Fight. I think there were seven of them, and they were hugely popular. Um, he'd already been pretty popular as a filmmaker already he, with uh, It Happened One Night, You Can't Take It With You, um, a series of other films that he'd had some success in uh, prior to the war. So when he re-enlisted in the Army, because he'd actually enlisted in World War I as well, when he re-enlisted in the Army, they made him start making these uh, these propaganda features. And George Marshall, General Marshall, said after the war that the two greatest weapons to come out of World War II were the airplane and the motion picture, because they, they, they were both used to great effect. So Capra comes out of this war, and he wants to get back in the scene. He wants to get back in Hollywood. And he purchases uh, the, the rights to It's a Wonderful Life, or I guess The Greatest Gift, for 10K from RKO Pictures. And he starts his own production company called Liberty Films, uh, which is kind of like a subsidiary of RKO at the time. And um, he's going to use It's a Wonderful Life, which is what he renames the story. He's going to use that as his first feature film uh, to, to be released by Liberty Films. Now, the question, first of all, was who to hire to play George Bailey. And there's some talk that he may have had Gary Cooper in mind because he'd work with Cooper quite a bit, but he'd also work with Jimmy Stewart quite a bit. And uh, Jimmy Stewart had um, made his a name for himself in You Can't Take It With You. That was the movie that got him pretty famous in 1939. And I have to be careful now not to get too wrapped up in the history of Jimmy Stewart because this is actually my second take recording this. And I accidentally made like a whole half hour that was just about Jimmy Stewart because that dude is fucking fascinating. Um, what a life this great American had. Uh, I will try and intersperse some of his story into the rest of it without getting uh, too in detail into the minutia of his life. Um, but he too, had, like Capra, had established himself as a great uh, and an up-and-coming uh, star in Hollywood and then the war break out, broke out, World War II. And... And he went to war, and he fought for the, the Air Army Corps, which is what they used to call the U.S. Air Force before it was a technically like before it technically existed because it didn't really get formed until after World War II. It was a branch of the U.S. Army before then. And um, and when it's over and done with, um, he comes back to Hollywood and he needs a hit. He needs something. And Capra, who um, who again? They had this pretty established relationship with one another as 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 uh, collaborators. Asked him to be a part of it, and supposedly it was kind of a ham-fisted, like, "Hey, this guy's going to kill himself," but then he changes his mind. Would you play him? Uh, kind of uh, proposal. And reportedly, Stewart was like, "Look, whatever you want me to do, I trust you, and I'll and I'll do it." And so they they got to work. Now, the script that they were working with had a lot of hands on it. Uh, like I said, it was it was passed around RKO to a handful of people before it even got in Capra's hands. And supposedly he took uh, some of those elements, but for the most part, re drastically rehauled it or overhauled it. And he hired the, the writing team, the husband and wife writing team of Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett and had them start writing the screenplay. 
And at the same time, he on his own worked with another woman named Joe Swirling and started writing the screenplay, unbeknownst to Hackett and Goodrich. So when it was all over and done with, um, Hackett and Goodrich realized that there was two scripts um, and they felt very jilted and angry about it. And there ended up being like some sort of litigation involved, like uh, at least in terms of, I think like the Screen Actors, not the Screen Actors Guild, but like whatever union, uh, the, the, the Writers Guild of America had to like uh, mediate and eventually Goodrich and Hackett got billing for the movie uh, and Capra got billing as as screenwriter for the movie. But if you look, Joe Swirling got, quote, additional scenes credit, whatever the hell that means. So everybody was pretty much angry at Capra on the writing team because Swirling felt jilted and Goodrich and Hackett felt jilted. Everyone felt like they weren't getting proper uh, proper credit. And another problem happened with the composer of the film, a guy named uh, Dmitry Tjomkin. And now these guys, Tjomkin and Capra, had a long working relationship. They'd already done five movies together. Tjomkin had been the composer for all of the Why We Fight documentary series films. And they had a good working relationship. But somewhere after Tjomkin, like recorded the entire score for the film, Capra went in and, and deleted something like 40 minutes from the actual final film, which enraged Tjomkin. And in his autobiography, he like lit in to Capra, despite the fact they eventually made up and they had this whole uh, this working relationship prior to this movie. Tjomkin did not appreciate having his work uh, interfered with. But and so Capra kind of stepped on some toes making this movie. It sounds like, but it's one of those things where, like, well, was he wrong? I mean, you know, like with any auteur, uh, and this wasn't. And he's not. He's not a true auteur, but I think he's auteur-esque. Um, you, part of the question has to be like, you know, yeah, maybe they're a dick, but uh, how good is the work of art? Most films are collaborative efforts that that you know have the handprints of. Uh, you know, hundreds of people on them, and it's and it's uh, and it's a beautiful thing to behold this collaborative process. But some some's are some movies are like the will of one person, and uh, that can be pretty special too, as I think this this movie proves. So one of the first things they had to do was create the town of Bedford Falls. And Bedford Falls is like a character in and of itself in this movie. It's just like, you know, Americana writ large. It's it's very uh, homey, but it's not a real town. It's uh, it's a town that was constructed on the 400-acre RKO Ranch in, in Encino, California. Um, some parts of it, I think, had been taken from another movie set that had been uh, you know, that had been used before, but most of it was was created anew. They they created. I mean, it was three city blocks, seventy five stores um, were constructed for this for the small town. Twenty fully grown oak trees were hauled in and planted. Uh, you know, cats and dogs are like brought in and like l- just let to run around on set to like look like uh, to give it a sense of realism. It's all uh, it's all very controlled and all very doctored, um, but it's gives you it gives a feel of of a pretty realistic hometown. So, um, you know, so realistic in fact, I guess that lots of people or lots of towns want to lay claim to. Um, you know, being the inspiration for Bedford Falls, in particular Seneca Falls in New York, uh, makes this claim that 
that Bedford Falls is based on them and uh, not to mess with their economy or anything because they have like an annual It's a Wonderful Life festival that brings people in. But uh, there's nothing to support that claim. There's no evidence whatsoever that Capra uh, had that in mind or any of the filmmakers had that town in mind. But it's, it's worked out pretty well for Seneca Falls, I guess. Another issue with uh, with the film was the issue of snow because the movie, of course, is... Uh, you know, it's a Christmas movie, as you may have known, and it takes place with uh, lots of cold conditions. So the options as a filmmaker are, do you record in cold conditions, as Capra had done with his previous movie, which had basically been filmed in an icebox, which came with some problems, or do you use fake snow, which was the norm for most uh, pictures at the time? You would take cornflakes and paint them white, and use them as snow and uh, that didn't work really well for audio because like you got your actors walking around crunching on 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 you know cornflakes and that messes with the audio so then they got to come in behind and like uh, redub the audio and Capro didn't want anything to do with that the old standard had been using cotton uh, like little strung up bits of cotton, but that's a fire hazard so that had been replaced with asbestos like literally just spraying asbestos around film sets, but thankfully uh, the World War II had kind of caused a shortage of asbestos, so uh, film companies stopped using that particular uh, agent. So what to use? Because Capra, you know, he wanted to have pure dialogue, so he puts that chemical engineering degree to work, and with the help of Russell Sherman, the, uh, the head of the special effects department, they come up with a new form of cinematic snow that became the standard for quite some time. Um, they took fomite, like that stuff inside of uh, fire extinguishers, and they mixed it with water, supposedly sugar, although some sources I've seen have not said sugar, and soap flakes, and just combined it all together and had it all spraying out of like a wind machine. And that's how they created that snow. And that actually wins them. The film gets a, 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 an Academy Award just for the snow as a technical achievement uh, at the Academy Awards that year. They also like uh, had lots of plaster snow banks and that kind of stuff, like fake snow banks. And they brought in 3,000 tons of shaved ice uh, to like deposit here and there as slush to make it all the more convincing. And it, and it works pretty well, especially considering the fact that they were filming in July. And not just July, but during a particularly brutal heat wave that was so bad that they had to periodically halt production just so people could get out of the out of the elements and out of the heat. Uh, and there's scenes in that movie where some of the actors are like visibly sweating in supposedly snowy conditions. But, you know, Hollywood a quick commercial break and we're going to come back and talk about the uh, actual production a little bit. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night, you're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's a clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? So the movie starts with this weird space scene, you know, like no one really saw that coming, I guess. It's, it's kind of not how you'd expect it to start. But of course, you got, uh, you got Clarence Oddbody up there getting ready to go uh, earn his wings, and he comes down to talk to our boy George Bailey. George Bailey isn't even the name in the, in the Greatest Gift. There's a lot about the book that, or the short story that's pretty different from the movie. For instance, 
in the move in sorry in the short story for instance like mr potter the villain is a, he works in a photography shop instead of a bank like i don't know how uh, vicious a villain he can be i should probably read the short story i don't know how vicious of a villain he can be if he works in a photography shop but you know whatever and then of course uh, you get most of the movies through flashbacks so you start off early in the film with uh, George Bailey being depicted by an actor who's not Jimmy Stewart. It's a young kid named Bobby Anderson. Goes by Bob now. He did a good job. He did a really good job. And he most of his scenes are playing off a guy named H.B. Warner, who played Mr. Gower, the, the pharmacist. Um, Gower was like a pharmacy in Hollywood or something that, that was being referenced. That's where that name comes from. Uh, and H.B. Warner himself, like this guy... He started over 100 films, had, had, had worked in silent film, was like one of those uh, one of those guys that had been around in Hollywood forever. And uh, he was maybe like an early method actor, some say. I don't know about that, but supposedly he was drinking on set uh, because Mr. Gower, his character, was, was, was drunk. So he starts drinking on set. Um, the day that they filmed the scene where, uh, where Gower slaps young Bailey... Um, that's real blood you see coming out of young Bobby Anderson's ear. Like, and bear in mind, like film sets, like it's not like this was shot in like a minute. Like this was like all day of this poor kid getting his head bashed around by fucking H.B. Warner, uh, you know, drunk and smacking him across the ear to the point that like when you see that moment when he's like really cowering and like before Warner goes in to hug him, like that's some pretty sincere fear that Stewart and Capra were off camera uh, observing. But he didn't hold any uh, ill will towards Mr. Gower. Actually, the only ill will, or towards H.B. Warner, uh, the only ill will that Anderson held towards any of the cast was actually to Thomas Mitchell, who played Uncle Billy, um, who was another character actor with a great reputation, supposedly a really nice guy, but Anderson called him a monster uh, and said that he was basically like... Uh, he didn't really go into specifics, but it sounds like Mitchell like manhandled him and like roughed him up to the point that Lionel Barrymore, uh, you know, uh, acting uh, acting royalty, Lionel Barrymore, who played uh, Mr. Potter in his, who was really in a wheelchair, by the way, grabbed uh, Mitchell by the arm at one point and, and to make him leave young Bobby Anderson alone and said to him, I don't think we have to be quite so strong with the lad. So Lionel Barrymore has kind of like some, uh, there's a lot of stories about him that maybe aren't that great either, but according to Anderson, he was a pretty sweet guy. And also, as, as for the role of Mr. Potter, like it makes sense that he was chosen, I think. He'd worked with Capra before, he'd worked with Stewart before as well. Um, but uh, it, uh, in particular, he was uh, part of a yearly radio show where he played Scrooge in an audio production of It's a Wonderful, or sorry, in an audio production of uh, Christmas Carol. So he's kind of well suited to play that Scrooge like character. And when Stewart is working with him, one of the things that he's struggling with is like, is it all worth it to make movies? Like I've been, I've been running missions, I've been fighting for my life and for the lives of my fellow soldiers and stuff for years and. He was like, you know, is and what I doing is what I'm doing important, and supposedly uh, he had this conversation with Barrymore, and Barrymore reportedly looked at him and said, "Isn't it better to entertain people than to drop bombs on them?" 
which I feel like is good advice. Uh, Donna Reed was hired to play Mary. This was like the first big role for her. She'd been like in 20 movies or something at that point, but it hadn't really uh, established herself as a leading woman yet. But this role put her there, got her pretty famous. She was like, she, like, like Jimmy Stewart, she came from a small town. Uh, he's from Pennsylvania. She's from, I want to say Montana, Missouri. Anyways, she came from like a rural area to the point that uh, Lionel Barrymore didn't believe her uh, that she could uh, milk a cow. And suppos supposedly she won 50 bucks on a bet that she could milk a cow. She also played baseball when she was in high school. So in that scene where she is throwing, uh, when her and George Bailey or Jimmy Stewart or whatever, are throwing rocks at the uh, old house that would one day be theirs. There's like a stuntman, like I don't know why this requires a stuntman, but there's a stuntman offset waiting with a baseball or a rock or whatever to, to throw it through a window and uh, and shatter it for Donna Reed. But she, she did that on her own. She didn't need any help. What, you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. She, like Capra, like Stewart, would go on to claim that It's a Wonderful Life was the favorite, was her most favorite movie that she ever recorded. Um, and another seminal scene in the movie is the swimming pool scene, uh, where you know where the the they're in the the swim gym, famous swim gym at Beverly Hills High School, which is still there, and the the floor opens up and everybody falls in. The kid that actually does that, that's the kid that played Alfie from Our Gang. And if you know what Our Gang is or Little Rascals is, then congratulations, you are old. So that swimming pool at the Beverly Hills High School also was famously featured in the film Clueless, the kind of creepy Cary Grant movie, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. The high school itself has appeared in many other, many other films. I mean, it was in Anywhere But Here with Susan Sarandon and Matt, Natalie Portman. And it features also in the music video for Nickelback's Rockstar, which is, I think, not the one that goes, look at that photograph. It's the one that goes like, I'm going to be a big rock star. You know, not the one that sucks. It's the other one that sucks. So in the film, George Bailey plans to leave Bedford Falls and go to college and like go have his big life and do some world traveling. But the death of his father sucks him into the family business at the local uh, building and loan. And in reality, uh, Jim, Jimmy Stewart's real life was somewhat similar. It's actually Jimmy Stewart's life was a bit more like uh, the role of uh, Harry Bailey, the, who played George, you know, which was George Bailey's brother. In real life, Jimmy Stewart's father worked at a hardware store that had been in the family for generations, and he very badly wanted Jimmy Stewart to enter that uh, family business, but Stewart pushed back, and eventually his father relented and sent him to Princeton, which, not too shabby. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. And at Princeton, he becomes friends with Henry Fonda and gets into uh, like summer stock there and eventually moves to New York and later to L.A. and becomes a pretty big deal. He also becomes interested in like getting his own. He gets he gets his, his uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He gets his aviation license. He gets his his pilot's license on his own in California, which comes in handy 
when he's drafted. Actually, I'm not even sure that he's drafted. I've seen conflicting information that he was drafted and that he was enlisted. If he was drafted, it was still after he was already trying to enlist because he tries to enlist when war breaks out and um, is underweight. So he actually goes to like a Hollywood trainer and like he's like, I need to gain like 10 pounds of muscle or something like that. And, and, and eventually is able to get uh, get into the army. And again, I have to be careful not to spend too much time on him, but once he's in the Army, he's put into the Army Air Corps because of his uh, pilot's license. And they, of course, try and utilize his celebrity, and they have him doing, like, USO shows, basically, and having him being, like, a show pony, which he fucking hates. He wants to, like, actually be in combat. You know, remember that scene in Forrest Gump when Gary Sinise's family descent, like, his family members, it shows, like, all of his ancestors, like, dying in the snow, like, repeatedly because, like, they're all uh, dying in different wars. That's kind of like what Jimmy Stewart's family is like. I don't know if they all died, but uh, he, had a long, he had a long history of his of, of family members fighting in uh, wars. His father had fought. His grandfather had fought. His family could be traced all the way back to, like, uh, before the country was, was actually a country. His, his family came with, like, you know, before 1776. So he, he wanted to be involved. So he actually really had to fight to um, to start flying missions, and he gets uh, and he and he does well flying missions, and um, he's eventually named a squadron commander. He ends the war as a lieutenant colonel, and he actually stays on as part of the U.S. Army, and he doesn't retire until 1968 when he's forced to because of mandatory uh, retirement ages. He, he turned 60 that year. He retires as brigadier general, which is the highest rank that any actor has ever had. Uh, and he even flew a mission during Vietnam in 1966. So... Um, yeah. So in the in the movie, it's 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 Harry who becomes a Navy pilot and gets a Medal of Honor. But in reality, uh, it's George or the guy that played George that goes and he gets the uh, uh, the, the Croix de Guerre or whatever from the French government. He gets all kinds of medals of valor and victory from the United States government as well. He's pretty celebrated as a pilot. And I don't have to go through the whole rest of the plot, I guess. I mean, chances are you've seen this movie. If but it does take some pretty dark turns. I mean, it uh, it deals with suicide. It deals with disappointment. It deals with a father who is irritated with his children and barks at them for no reason other than that he's frustrated. It's it's a fairly realistic depiction of, of, of a person. It's funny that George Bailey is so often depicted as uh, this ideal man. And, and I guess it's because he always does, the character does, what's best for the community, what's, what's best for... For everybody, rather than just following his own dreams, he gives up those dreams to uh, to be part of a community and 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 be part of the greater good, which is a very Capra esque message to have like this civic mindedness, this um, this interconnectedness, to the point that after the movie is released, the FBI actually investigates him, investigates the movie for having communist sympathies, which is hilarious because he was the furthest thing from a communist. He was A lot of people thought that he was pretty left-wing, Capra, but he was not. He was a pretty right-wing dude. Um, a lot of the writers that he worked with were pretty leftist. Um, he himself, Capra, uh, did not vote for FDR, for instance, not even one time, and even named names to Joseph McCarthy's uh, House on American Activities Committee. So uh, not exactly uh, commie, if you will. The movie itself has kind of a interesting impact when it comes out. 
There's reports, some people will say that it was a dud or a box office failure. That's not exactly true. It didn't make back the money that was invested into it, which, you know, that kind of defines it as a, as a you know, it's a, not as a, I don't want to say failure, but, uh, you know, that's usually the metric that, that's measured against it. But of course, it was also nominated for five Academy Awards, of which it won one. Uh, Jimmy Stewart was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It was nominated for Best Supporting Film. So it wasn't, it wasn't exactly, uh, you know, a slouch. People thought it was pretty sentimental. People thought it was a little mawkish, maybe. Um, but People liked it more or less, uh, and and as I said, like Capra and Stewart and Reed and pretty much everyone else involved, really liked it. Uh, Capra once said that it was the greatest film ever made by anyone, because um, you know he's just so uh, humble, I guess. He also said that the film was fatal to his professional career. Uh, he didn't do a lot after that. It actually bankrupted Liberty Films, you know, the the production company that he had started. It was his first and last film that Liberty Films did. So It's a Wonderful Life um, may have been uh, lost to history the same way that the same way that whatever won Best Picture that year is. I, I should check. Hang on. Okay. Well, it, it lost to the best years of our lives, which I've never seen, but hasn't exactly been forgotten either, I guess. At any rate, it may have been uh, swept under the rug more or less had not some sort of clerical error Sometime in 1974, there's a clerical copyright error, and Republic Pictures, who owned it, they're they're Viacom now, they didn't renew their copyright, which is weird. And so from 1974 until the early 90s, it is basically free for networks to play this movie. I mean, it is essentially just free. So every year, especially around the holidays, it starts being broadcast like numerous times all the all the big you know well all three of the big networks um, they love this movie why because it's a free two hours just just put it on and so it becomes like this entire generation or two I mean when I was a kid I remember this because I'm from the 80s you could just kind of like turn on almost any station and there it would be sometime around around uh, Christmas and so it becomes like this Hollywood staple. And there's this question, I think, about would it be a classic had it not had this sort of cultural saturation where so many different generations of Americans are watching this movie? If, if, if it had not been so saturated in terms of broadcasting, perhaps it would not be remembered, or at least not nearly as well. Now, it doesn't hurt, of course, that it's a great movie with a beautiful story behind it. I mean, when I think of that movie... I especially think of the final scene when he comes back from the alternate reality where he sees like the dark nightmare vision of Bedford Falls, you know, the uh, Potterville, which is like uh, Biff Tannen's version of whatever the town is called in uh, Back to the Future. I'm sure someone will help me out with the name of that town. So when I think of that movie, I think of him coming back. I think of him running down the street and yelling, you know, that the sheer jubilation he had that he was himself again, that he was alive and living, you know, his specific life. He had made choices. There had been these outside circumstances that had driven him to despair. But all the same, you know, life was the greatest gift, like his own actual life. And I think of the way the exaltation in his voice. And as much as I love like Cary Grant or Gary Cooper, like I don't know that anybody could have nailed that, that sheer 
bliss, that like the rasp in his voice, that ending scene, that the way that Jimmy Stewart does. So, yeah, maybe it's the fact that it's a great fucking movie, which is why so many... I'm sure everyone appreciates me dropping the F-bomb so much while talking about this Frank Capra classic. Uh, but, you know, I got, a, I got a dirty mouth. What do you want from me? So it's both a great movie and it's something that is just, like, driven into the heads of generations of people. So uh, in 1990, the Supreme Court rules a case, uh, Stewart versus Bend. That's Jimmy Stewart, all right, but it's not... Uh, the case has nothing to do... Uh, with It's a Wonderful Life, it's actually about the the rights to Rear Window. Um, a Bend was a uh, like a literary agent who was working to try and get the rights back to his client for the short story it, it had to be murder that Rear Window was based on. And the Supreme Court rules for a Bend, and Republic Pictures uh, uses that ruling to reassert copyright over It's a Wonderful Life because they still owned the rights to uh, Van Doren Stern's Greatest Gift. So now it's, you know, it's a little bit harder to find. Not, not exactly hard. I mean, in preparation for today, um, I went to go watch it, but because, uh, but like, part of me still wants it to be like that 74 to 1991 or whatever span where it's like, I shouldn't have to pay for it. It should just be free. So I tried to like, you know, go to any of the streaming services that I do in fact pay for to watch it and the only one showing it right now uh, for free is Amazon Prime but the version they're showing is the version that Ted Turner colorized and I tried to watch that and I got like two minutes in and I'm just like what the fuck like what 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 would possess someone to I mean in 1946 when this picture was shot color existed if he wanted to shoot it in color he would have but he was going capra was going for a nostalgic effect so uh why people want to come in i mean it's one thing when like george lucas wants to come and mess up his own classic which that sucks when he does that but if you're going to go in and mess with someone else's classic like the audacity and uh pig-headedness it's just something else we're getting a little long in time here so that'll wrap up today's session on It's a Wonderful Life. I, I feel like there's a lot more that could be said, to be honest, but I don't want to get too long here. Jimmy Stewart, what a guy, what an American. Frank Capra, thanks for this film. I think that he was maybe a problematic guy in other ways, but this film is really a, a treasure, and, and I just love it, and I hope that uh, you do too. So um, before I get to the suggestions, I want to say real quick, uh, reminder: You can uh, you can talk to me whenever you want. I'm on the Twitter uh, Travis B at, at Travis B Roy, or you can find me on Facebook. It's a it's a you know I have a page for very broad history of werewolves and other things, so you can contact me there or follow me there. Um, it's nice to get messages from from people listening, like the kid that contacted me and asked if I could help him become a werewolf. Um, I was una I was unable to help him, but good luck with that. And also, you know, if you're rank, if you're like, uh, you know, ranking me on iTunes or whatever, or rating me rather, and if you're telling people about the show and helping me out by spreading the word, I truly appreciate it. If this is your first time listening, thank you. If you're a regular listener, thank you. I just really appreciate people taking the time. To wrap things up today, uh, I'm going to do a recommendation of Christmas songs. Uh, there's a guy named Mark Kozalek. 
He's from a couple bands, Red House Painters, Sun Kill Moon. And if, like me, you like Christmas music but want people to know that you're serious about liking craft beer and wearing flannel and having a beard, uh, you want people to know that you're super hip and indie, uh, why listen to just any old fool singing Christmas songs? Why not listen to Mark Kozilek sings Christmas carols so you can have like his kind of uh, unaffected, disenchanted, somewhat lazy singing voice. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's got a great voice, don't get me wrong, but there's something about his delivery that is very like uh, off the cuff and casual, which when paired with these Christmas songs makes for uh, an interesting listen. But any, at any rate, you know, it's just uh, if you want some Christmas songs uh, and you're sick of the five hours of indie Christmas songs provided by Sufjan Stevens, uh, or Sufjan Stevens, however the fuck you want to pronounce it, you know, whatever you prefer. I say Sufjan. Uh, anyways, this is an option. Mark Kozilek. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Like always, I will see you very soon. A Very Broad History of Werewolves and Other Things is written by me, Travis Roy, produced by Brennan Store, and recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 